Well, I hope you all had some nice refreshments. Really appreciate the church and their hospitality to us. And really, Nan and I are just so excited to see what God's doing with Jared and Tirsa and the people here at the church. We can see a lot going on, and we've had the opportunity to come to some classes and gather together at the prayer time. And really, I was amazed, you know, just sitting with a small group that showed up Wednesday night and just the number of concerns that were brought up and the number of needs that were mentioned and, and the care and compassion that was evident in everyone that was there and their prayers very, very encouraging and very gratifying to us. Well, after this session is my favorite period of school, and that was lunch. <laughs> I always excelled at that particular part of the curriculum. So we're going to uh, pick up and move on from where we were, but don't turn away from Hebrews 12 yet, because I had a couple of questions that came up during the break, and I may as well touch on those before we move into our second session. So let's just go before the throne of God's grace and uh, once again ask Him to make our time profitable for each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, as we come before Your throne, we are conscious that we often fail and often falter. How thankful we are that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin. The moment that we trust in Him, all sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven and cleansed. And yet in time, as we oftentimes stumble, we have the opportunity to come before you and to confess our sins and to have the confidence, not regarding our salvation, not regarding our eternal standing before you, but regarding our activity as a believer, our fellowship with you and our productivity, we can confess those sins and receive the cleansing that restores us to fellowship and therefore to the power of God the Holy Spirit within. So Father, we come before you recognizing and uh, each in our own mind uh, elucidating the things that we so often do that hinder the work that you want to accomplish in us. We are thankful, Father, for God the Holy Spirit who takes up the Word and makes it live in our life. We pray that He will work in a mighty way during this session, meeting each of our needs as He takes the truth that's spoken, the passages that we look at, and divides them and applies them according to each of our needs. So accomplish something for eternity as we meet together this hour. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I mentioned in the last class that there is a passage, and I firmly believe that this passage is showing us what a believer sees when they die. And <clears throat> that may be my opinion. It's, to me, it's not a, uh, an issue of interpretation. It's not something that I would fight over with someone. But to me, it provides tremendous encouragement, and I know that it has, as I've had the opportunity to share it many times at funerals, and I thought, since we're in Hebrews 12, hopefully your Bible's still open there, 
Uh, if not, open again to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me share with you where I get this idea. Uh, if I'm right in how I'm looking at this passage, I think it's the only passage in the Bible that shows us what we see when we die. So in Hebrews chapter 12, the author is continuing, and all the way through the book, he's contrasting what the people had under the old covenant and what we have under the new covenant. And so he says in verse 18, you have not come to the mountain, we're talking here about Mount Sinai, that may be touched. In other words, it was a literal and physical mountain that burned with fire and to the blackness and the darkness and the tempest. You'll remember that as Moses went up the mountain and God was giving to him the law, uh, there were terrifying effects that were taking place uh, before the children of Israel who were gathered there at the base. And then he says, verse 19, the sound of a trumpet, the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. You'll remember if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it describes to us how Moses came down the mountain and his face was glowing from the reflected glory of God. And it was terrifying to the children of Israel. And so they asked him to put a veil over his face. So all of these things were really <clears throat> visible and physical expressions of the effect of the law. The covenant that they were entering into was not a covenant of salvation. It was a covenant of condemnation. It was a covenant that declared that those who break the law are going to be under the condemnation of God. He goes on to say in verse 20, they could not endure what was commanded if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Moses, God spoke to Moses as a friend speaks to his friend. And yet under all of those evidences of the effect of the law, he was terrified. But, great conjunction of contrast here in verse 22, you have come. Now what I want to point out here is that he has been speaking of actual experiences that the children of Israel had. The sounds that they heard, the sights that they saw, the effect that it had on them was literal, real experience. And I don't think that we should suddenly turn to allegory when we now start talking about what we have in Christ. So he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion, of course, is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We see the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. <coughs> to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just man made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So if you will just try to picture in your mind the eyes of the believer in death close the moment our eyes close to this world, our eyes open to the next. And what do we see? The first thing we see is the heavenly Jerusalem. So you can imagine there you are laying on your deathbed. I actually look forward to this. I think it's going to be an exciting experience. And as your life is fading, your breath is fading, your eyes close, and suddenly the spiritual realm is open to you, and there you see in the distance the New Jerusalem. 
glittering and shining in all of its glory. And then you begin to approach it. Other passages of Scripture picture for us the fact that believers are ushered into the presence of God by angelic uh, escorts. So the angels begin to escort you. There's the glittering city. You begin to move toward it, and then something amazing happens. The gates open. And spilling out of the gates are multitudes of angelic beings. We need to understand there's some cultural and historical facts that make this a little bit more realistic to us. In ancient times, when a, an important person, someone of status or someone of uh, position of authority or power, when they would approach a city, the custom was that there would be emissaries that would come out from the city to meet them. This was a matter of uh, honor and respect and so forth. They would come out to meet them, to escort them to the city. And then as they approached the city, others would come out, a little bit higher rank. They would come out and they would join the ones that were already with you. And then as you get closer to the city, those of higher and higher rank come until finally you're approaching the city and all of the city officials and all of the important people are coming with you. So this is what we're actually seeing here. You're approaching the city. Multitudes of angels, an innumerable company of angels spill out. And if you can just picture them spilling out of the gates of heaven and just forming an avenue for you to walk between the angelic hosts. And then as you pass through the hosts of angels, it says that then we come to the general assembly. I think the general assembly is a reference to Old Testament saints. This is the... Uh, Witness the cloud of witnesses that we see earlier in chapter 12. So the Old Testaments are, are there. And if you can just imagine as you're passing through this crowd and the angels are singing triumphal songs and there you begin shaking hands with the great saints of the Old Testament. You pass through the ranks and you're greeting them. And what are they saying to you? They're saying, welcome home. We've been waiting for you. Now you're here. And so you pass through the general assembly and then you come to the church of the firstborn. So after you've passed through the Old Testament saints, now you're passing through the church and you're meeting Paul, you're meeting Peter, you're meeting Mary and Mary and Mary. You know, there's a bunch of them. You're meeting all of the people that you've read about in the New Testament and it runs all the way through the history from the time of Christ to the present time, as you finally come to your father, your mother, your husband, your wife, your children, whatever it may be, you're greeting those who have gone before. And then after you pass through the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, we come to God. This refers to God the Father, and He is the judge of all. Now, under normal circumstances, the fact that we're coming before God, who's the judge of all, would be a cause of a little bit of fear and trepidation. But I want you to notice the phrase that's attached that's very important. Here is the perfect judge of all, who stands in the presence of all of these spirits of just men made perfect, and the whole point is there's no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. So the Father now welcomes you. And then what does he do? 
He introduces you to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And in my own mind, I picture this. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> now I've passed through this multitude of angels, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. I meet the Father. The Father takes us by the hand, and we now enter into the city, and standing within the gates of the city is the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that picture, the author and the finisher. He started the race now my race is run, I'm standing in his presence, and I enter into the place that he has prepared for me. I don't know what kind of a place you have in mind. We talk about mansions in heaven. Uh, I guess some people are excited about mansions. Uh, I was teaching in India one time in a village setting, and uh, they happened to be just outside Hyderabad, and in Hyderabad there is a something like a five-star, six-star hotel. I can't remember the name of it, but it's just huge, and everyone that goes in and out of the city sees this beautiful, rich, plush place. They can only imagine what's going on inside, the kind of food people are eating, the kind of rooms that they have, the luxury that they're enjoying. These poor village people, you know, it's difficult for them to even grasp. And I said, just imagine if your mansion was that whole hotel and it's yours. And of course, they just erupted in shouts of joy and applause and, and everything else. I kind of have a little bit simpler expectation. To me, the mansion I want, I always tell people, you'll be there in the city, and here's your mansion, and next to you is this other person's mansion, and then you'll notice somewhere there's a little gate in the city, and it leads out, and there's this little trail that goes up and over a hill, and down on the other side, there's going to be a log cabin. That's going to be my place. But one thing I know, when you get to the place that the Lord prepared for you, you are going to realize that you're home for the first time in your life. You're going to realize that He prepared it with you in mind. You're going to say, how, how did He know? When did He, when did he think about this? How, how could He have known everything I always wanted that I never had and here it is? It's going to be absolutely amazing. So if you take this passage, to me, it's a tremendous encouragement. I've shared it with a lot of people all around the world. And uh, to me, it makes it come alive. Uh, I never could get excited about sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Uh, I always wondered when I would hear that kind of an analogy, who would want to go to heaven? There's got to be some place where something interesting is going on. But when we start thinking about it as a kingdom, and it's actually a kingdom that encompasses heaven and earth, because ultimately there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we are going to be a part of that whole kingdom that is operating on those eternal levels. So that may encourage you. I hope it does. I hope it maybe provides a little bit more of a realistic, when I think of death, this is what I think of. I don't think of what I'm leaving behind. You know, I've been going on mission trips for many, many years, and it's always hard to leave the family when my kids were little. Uh, I can remember mission travel back in those days was totally different than it is today. I had never had a credit card in my life. I left with a pocket full of hopefully enough money to get me through and had no phones, no way to contact. I mean, you were just out there. But when I would leave the family and the kids would be sad, dad's leaving, how long are you going to be gone and everything? And 
I would always think about time to leave them behind. I need to look forward. I can't be looking behind me. I say my goodbyes. I turn my face. I'm looking to what's ahead. And it always made it easier. And I think the day is going to come when we're going to look ahead and we're going to have to say goodbye to friends, family, whatever. It's time to look ahead now because we're headed to our eternal home. So I hope it's an encouragement to you. I'd like you to move with me into our second session uh, on biblical meditation. We've looked at our Savior. We've looked at what He's done for us. Let's look at ourselves in light of that salvation. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. This is something that we're commanded to think about, to dwell on or to meditate on. You'll notice that he says in Romans 6 and verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a step that many people never take in their spiritual life. We come to Christ, we receive the gift of eternal life, we're thankful for our eternal salvation, but we don't, as I said in our last session, we don't identify with who we really are in Christ. And so the word reckon here goes back to that word logizomai that I mentioned earlier, again, a bookkeeping term. It means to add up to the facts, to take into account, uh, to balance the books, if you will, reckon these things to be true. The present tense tells us that we need to keep doing this day by day. You know, we oftentimes fail to realize that the most important day in our life is today. Yesterday's gone, nothing we can do about it. Tomorrow's uncertain, we may not be there. We have today. And the, today is the day that we have to make these things a reality in our life. The middle voice is used. The middle voice is interesting. We don't have it in the English language, but I call the middle voice the boomerang voice. The middle voice means that you produce the action, but you receive the benefits of the action. So it's like a boomerang. When I was a kid in high school, I discovered how to make boomerangs. I, I studied them and I figured out how to do the airfoil properly on a boomerang to actually make it come back. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time making them. I had a lot of fun. Uh, my sisters will tell you to this day how terrifying it was for them because I used to have them lay down and put a straw out of their mouth and I learned how to throw that boomerang and whip that straw right out of their mouth and there are different ways depending on how you throw it it's going to react according to how you throw it, right? Whether it spins around this way, whether it comes around this way whether you throw it down toward the ground, which I would do you know, with a straw out of their mouth, if you throw it down at the ground in a horizontal, it's going to go up because that airfoil determines the direction that it's going to go. Well, one time I decided I'm going to make a big hunting boomerang. I want something big, strong, and dangerous, right? So I made this huge boomerang out of very heavy wood spent hours and hours and hours rasping it down and, and forming that airfoil and getting it where it would fly right. And I took it out in a high wind and I thought this will just be the perfect day to test out this boomerang. And so I threw it in the horizontal method so that when you throw it like this, 
it scoops down toward the ground that goes way up in the air and then it turns and starts coming back to you. So you can see the middle voice, you produce the action and you receive the results of your action, right? So, no, my sisters weren't there. I was the target this time. So I threw it, goes way out. I mean, if it's heavy, it'll go a long ways and it goes way up in the air. And I'm standing there looking at it and it seemed like it was spinning and standing still up there in the air. And I thought, this isn't possible. And then all of a sudden I realized the reason it looks like it's just spinning in the air is because it's coming straight toward me and I can't tell it's moving because it's directly in my line of sight. And I ducked my head just in time and this big thing came roaring by my head and hit into the ground. And if I hadn't moved, I would have received the results of my action. And I probably wouldn't be here talking to you today. You didn't tell your sister. Uh, what's that again? Oh, no, no, you never tell your sisters when you make a mistake. <laughs> reckon, think about this, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Present tense, I need to do this today. Middle voice, if I do it, I'm going to benefit from it. The imperative is a command. This is something you're supposed to be doing and basically it boils down to this, am I abiding in Christ today? Jesus said, abide in me, and I in you. There's no doubt that he's in us. The question is, are we in him? Abide in, in me, and I in you, and you will possibly bear some fruit. Right? Didn't know if it was up there or not. John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you, and you will bear. Did we get it? All right. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, and yes, you abide in me. Verse 5 goes on to tell us I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And you all remember that as you work through the context in that passage, it talks about bearing fruit, talks about bearing more fruit, talks about bearing much fruit. The whole idea comes right out of Psalm chapter 1, the tree that's planted by the water, receiving the grace resources of God. And my friends, all of the resources of God come to you and I from two sources. Number one, the Holy Spirit who dwells within. The moment you trust Christ as your Savior, God the Holy Spirit creates a new being in you. Every man in Christ is a new creation or a new creature. And the reason he creates that new being in you, that new spirit within you, is so that he has a place to dwell. When he creates that new creature, Paul calls it the new man. That is the place where he dwells. And why is that important? Because he has created a place for himself that none of your sin can touch him. If you think of the tabernacle, you have the outer court. It was open to everyone. That's a picture of our body. Then you have the holy place. The holy place is restricted to only a few. That's our soul. 
There are only a few people that we really let in. Everyone can see us, we rub shoulders, we knock heads, we, you know, we interact with one another and we're, we're open to the world as far as the body, but the soul is a little more restricted, only certain people get in. That's the holy place. But the holy of holies, only one went in. And that was the high priest on the day of atonement and not without blood. And so the spirit inside my body Inside my soul, if you picture a target with three concentric circles, here's my body, here's my soul, here's the Spirit, that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. And He takes up permanent residence, and this may explain a verse to some of you that have struggled with it. In 1 John chapter 3, John tells us, that which is born of God occasionally sins. Right? No? Different translations again, right? That which is born of God cannot sin. It is impossible for that new creature in you to ever commit a sin. That holy place that God, the holy of holies that God created within you, where God the Holy Spirit dwells, if your sin and my sin could penetrate it, we would lose the Holy Spirit as they did in the Old Testament. Saul was gifted with the Holy Spirit when he began to sin. He did not know that the Spirit departed from him. Uh, Samson, empowered by the Holy Spirit, when he began dallying with Delilah, you remember what happened? He got up and he said, I will get up and go out as I have previously. And here's the saddest words in Scripture. He did not know the Spirit had departed from him. It'll never happen to you and I. We never have to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me, because he has promised that the Holy Spirit, once he takes up residence in us, is there forever. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Another promise that comes out of Hebrews 13. He will always be there. Yes, you can grieve him. Yes, you can quench him. But he'll never leave. And so it's important for us to understand that because when the scriptures tell us there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ and we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, he's talking about the essential us, the real we at the center of our being. And so what Paul's saying here is that we need to reckon ourselves to be who we are. We need to add up the facts this is what we fail to do, and this is why we're trying to emphasize the importance of meditation. Meditation is so we can pull apart from the world, find a quiet place, sit down, and uh, if you go in your notes, page 15, 16, 17, from the other conference, I've given you a lot of examples of how you can meditate. There are a lot of different ways to do it. Different people do it different ways. Find the way that works for you. But find that place, pull apart from the world, and take that time, whatever that time may be. But I think I can confidently say this to you. The more you begin to take time to meditate, the more time you're going to want to take to meditate. You won't have to push it. You won't have to try to stretch it out. You'll have trouble breaking away and getting back to the business of the day because you will find that it is so rich and so valuable in your life. 
Do you know why I had the conference on meditation? I have to tell you, I'm a good manipulator. <clears throat> so I'm at a conference and I said, you know, we really ought to have a conference on meditation. Nobody ever teaches it. So I threw it out there, waiting for someone to say, let's do that. And so I, the same day, they're listening to me while I'm at this other conference. The same day, the people in Arkansas said, we want our conference to be on meditation. So see, I threw the bait out. Now I'm reeling them in. Do you know why I did that? Because I began to come under the conviction that I was not doing what I should be doing in the area of meditation. And I wanted to take time to study it and analyze it and find out what it was all about. And the best way to do that is for someone to ask me to do a conference on it. And so we did. And then when uh, we started setting things up for this weekend. Jared asked me, would you do something? And I thought, ah, oh, this is magnificent. Now I get to get back into it again. So that's why we're here and that's why we're studying what we're studying. Reckon yourselves. Notice the little word likewise. Verse 11, Romans 6, verse 11, likewise. Like what? We should ask the question, like what? And the answer is, like Christ. As with him, so with us. And so we have to understand a little bit about what happened with him. And this would take up all of chapter 5 and chapter 6. Chapter 5 talks about how Adam brought sin into the world and sin brought death. And so as by one man many died, even so through Christ, he came into the world. He conquered the issue of sin. He dealt with the power of the devil and broke it and provided grace upon grace upon grace. Likewise, how did he do it? I want you to think about this. If you were to describe what Christ did for us, how he broke the power of sin, how he defeated Satan, how he provided salvation, if you were to give something as simple as a little child could understand, what would you say? Death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel I preached to you, by which you were saved, by which I was also saved, he says. And what is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That's it. It's very, very simple, but it's profound, and it's powerful. So likewise, reckon yourself to die and be buried and be raised again. Let's back up and start at what we could call dead reckoning. You'll notice there in your notes, spiritual dead reckoning. Dead reckoning is a, a term that they use in navigation. So Wikipedia defines it in navigation. Dead reckoning is the process of calculating your current position or the current position of some moving object by using a previously determined position or fix. Then incorporating estimates of speed, heading, direction, and course over the elapsed time, you can figure the progress that you're making. That's 
dead reckoning. Sometimes it's used in navigation uh, where you're simply using your compass and you're doing dead reckoning based on uh, there's a high point over here and a high point over here and you see on your map using your compass you can determine from those two high points essentially where you are. Now you have a general idea of the way that you need to go. We need to use this in our spiritual life because our previously determined position is revealed to us in Romans chapter 5. I want you to notice in Romans 5 and verse 6, for when we were, what? Without strength. Without strength. What does that mean? When you're without strength, what can you do? Nothing. What could we do for our salvation? Nothing. That's our previous position. And then if you drop down to 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners. Without strength, sinners separated from God. I mean, we could amplify all of these. And then we drop down to verse 10 and it says, for if when we were enemies. It's very interesting when the Bible talks about reconciliation, it never talks about reconciling God to men. Have you ever noticed that? The estrangement and the alienation was never on God's part. Even after the sin in the garden, and Adam and Eve violated the command of God, still the Lord comes into the garden to meet with them. And what do they do? The first thing they do is try to cover up their sin. That's Operation Fig Leaf, which is what we call religion. Religion is always an attempt to cover up our nakedness. I do good deeds. I give to charities. I'm kind to little old ladies. I help children. I do all of these wonderful things. That's all fig leaves trying to cover up the fact that we are sinners separated from God. And then when the Lord comes in the garden, still seeking them, what do they do? They run and hide, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, if you stop and think about it, if Adam knew anything about the nature of God, he would know that he's omniscient. He is know that he's omnipresent. There's no way that I can go. David lays it out in Psalm 139. Where can I hide from your spirit? If I go to the depths of the sea, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. I can't hide from you. But Adam and Eve try to hide. Why do they try to hide? Adam finally makes the ultimate confession, I was afraid. Do you know why people run from you when you witness to them? Because you're an instrument of God who is seeking them and they're afraid. And they're convicted of their lost condition. And Satan uses that conviction to try to blind them to the truth of the gospel. And therefore they run. And we have to keep seeking, and we have to keep pursuing. And God has been pursuing the human race. God never ceases to pursue a soul as long as it lives. As long as there's breath in the lungs, as long as there is life in the body, God continues to pursue until the point that it is no longer possible. And that is where the unbeliever passes from this world into eternity and stands in condemnation of the lake of fire forever and ever. Have you ever meditated on hell? It's very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable to just meditate on what the scripture tells us 
hell is going to be like forever and ever. When an unbeliever dies, their first second in hell is the most horrible thing that they have ever experienced and they only have eternity for it to go on and on and on. And I've heard people say, well, when I go to hell, all my friends will be there. We'll just party. No, no, you won't see your friends. You may hear their screams off in the distance and in the darkness, but you'll never see them. Because one of the conditions of hell is isolation and aloneness and separation from everything that is good. In this life, however bad it may be, is as close to heaven as an unbeliever will ever get. Do you ever think of that? Take some of the poor people that are born into the world and, and live in poverty and battle starvation and struggle just to survive. They don't realize they're as close to heaven as they'll ever get. On the other side of the coin, this world is as close to hell as the believer will ever get. Whatever hardships, heartaches, difficulties, sorrows there may be, you will never get closer to hell than those experiences. Because what awaits you as a child of God is the fulfillment of every hope, every dream, every desire of your heart that is right. Every pure hope, every pure desire, and we all have them. Sometimes it's nothing but a, a strain of music that we catch for just a moment and it's like it just transports us almost out of ourselves and out of our circumstances as that, as that melody or that music hits us and we have just that, that split moment of, ah, this is so wonderful. Or sometimes it's a smell of fragrance. It's a little taste of heaven. It's a preview of coming attractions but only for those who are believers. So when we're without strength, why are we without strength? Because we're sinners. And because we're sinners, why are we enemies? We're enemies of God, not because He turned against us, but because we have turned against Him. So we take that as our previous position, and then we think of coming to an understanding of what Christ has done for us, and coming to Him in faith, and then we begin our dead reckoning. And what is the dead reckoning? Based on my previous position and my current movement, how far have I come? What a tragedy for people who have been believers for years and years and years who cannot say, I have made significant progress. I have grown in grace and truth. My understanding of God and His grace and His mercy and provision for me has expanded day by day, month by month, year by year as I've lived on this earth. We should meditate on those things. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. What does that mean? Well, there's really a process that goes on here, and I want you to see it in Romans 6. It's part of a three-part project. A three-part process that Paul lays out, and it begins with learning. It begins with learning. I want you to notice what he says here at the beginning. He's just been dealing with our victory in Christ in Romans chapter 5. By the way, when I get a book... Uh, of theology or a book on Romans, Romans 5 is the first place I come. I want to know how they treat Romans 5, and it'll tell me 
what they think of the whole book or what, what their theology is based on. So Romans 5 tells us everything that we've come to in Christ, and he tells us at the end of Romans chapter 5 that as uh, sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life. Wonderful, victorious, glorious, and so on and so forth. So then the question logically comes to the surface. So does that mean we can just sin and grace will just keep abounding? Romans 6.1 what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? How can we do this? Not only how is it possible, but how could we allow it to happen? How could we who have become the recipients of such grace turn away from the one who sought and saved us and go on about our lives as if nothing had happened? That's not the goal of the Christian life. Verse 3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, and by the way, this is not referring to water baptism, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism does not unite you to Jesus Christ. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit takes you and places you into eternal un union with Christ. You are raised up, made alive, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 deals with all that, and that is the work of God the Holy Spirit. As many of us as were baptized into Christ, we could say as many of us as were united with Jesus Christ, we were united in His death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, notice the purpose clause, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's the big ought. We ought to walk in newness of life. What is newness of life? Resurrection life. That should be the norm of our existence, the norm of our life. But how can this happen? Verse 5 says, If we've been united with the likeness of His death, we should be also in the likeness of His resurrection. I want that to happen in my life. And I hope that you want it to happen in your life, but it's a process. It's not automatic. It doesn't happen in a moment of time. It's a result of meditation. How do we meditate? Three steps. Here they are. Verse 6, knowing. What does knowing imply? Knowing implies learning. <clears throat> we'll be uh, in Philippians chapter 4 later on, and <clears throat> we'll be looking at the Apostle Paul, and he'll be talking about what he knows and what he wants to know. Because he never stopped pressing on. He never stopped climbing higher. He never stopped reaching out for what was ahead. And neither should we. Knowing this, that our old man, that is the we that existed before salvation, was crucified with him. Whether you realize it or not, that old man's dead. He's dead and it's good that he's dead. He's dead and gone. How is he dead? He's dead as a husband divorced from his wife is dead. Did you realize that when divorce takes place, there's a death? 
There is a death to the relationship. There is a death to the parties. They are dead to one another in the sense of that relationship. In the same way, when we came to Christ, there is a death to the old man because he will never exist again. We now have that new creature within us. We now have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. He says the reason that the old man died was that, he, that the body of sin might be done away with. Very important phrase. It means to render powerless. <clears throat> it doesn't mean to cease to exist. Karageo is a word that means to break the power of. It's still there. The sin nature is still there. It still wants to operate. It still wants to dominate. It still wants to control us, but the power is broken. And if we keep learning the first stage of victory, keep knowing we're going to come to victory. <clears throat> Notice verse 7, He who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. In eternity, we're going to be with Him. Knowing, verse 9, here's our word again, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion over Him. Do you notice that in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9, there's the repetition of a word? Knowing. You know how life change begins? Teaching. God has designed us to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. God has designed us to be born into His family as little infants, to grow into adolescence, to move sooner or later out of the adolescent stage into maturity, to take on our shoulders the responsibility of a spiritual adult. Do you know what the tragedy across the United States of America is? If we could round up all the Christians in this country, we would have one great big nursery and a couple of people trying to handle it. They're screaming, they're crying, they're... I have to watch myself. I was raised in a rough environment. Sometimes I th say things I shouldn't say. They're messing their diaper. Right? And there's a few people running around trying to... Feed, wash, clean, change. And why is that? Because people are not willing to learn. Every pastor needs to be a teacher. The goal of every pastor is to take you where you are and lead you someplace you've never been. When you hear things you never heard before, when you are challenged with things that you've never been challenged with before, that's because there is a cry that is going out, grow up. It's time to grow. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I acted as a child, I thought as a child, Paul says, when I became a man, I put away the childish things. When Jesus challenged Peter at the Sea of Galilee as he gathered together with the disciples after the resurrection, what did he tell him? Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. It's not all to the adults. It's not all to the children. We try to offer what is needed to both. Some need the very basic, the very simple the very easily understood, some need the more advanced. And we have to do that in a setting like this where we have...
people all the way from maybe a new convert in Christ all the way up to people that are spiritually mature and taking responsibility for their spiritual life. But it begins with knowing, and knowing can only come from learning. This is why the word for learner and the word for disciple are the same in the New Testament. As disciples, we are on a mission to grow. So first, it is knowing. That's verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. Then comes the reckoning. We can't reckon in verse 11 until we know, until we've learned. So the second step of our spiritual growth is after we learn a truth, we need to consider it to be a reality in our life. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin. I want this area of satisfaction, or I desire this area of gratification, or my flesh longs for whatever. You know what? The minute all that comes to a screeching halt is the minute that I stop and think, what have I learned? I have learned that I have been delivered from that through the sacrifice of Christ. God the Holy Spirit indwells me. His Word instructs me. The Spirit within and the Word without have to be put together. By the way, there's no power of the Spirit in your life without the Word. There's no power in the Word without the Spirit. If you sit and listen to the Word the rest of your life and you're not filled with the Spirit, it's going to be a waste of time. As a matter of fact, it'll be counterproductive because you will know, but you will not have the power to implement, and therefore you'll be worse off than you were in the beginning. The Spirit of God and the Word of God, I said earlier, am I abiding in Christ? What is abiding in Christ? I am filled with the Spirit, and I am filled with the Word, and the two of them work together. You ever use epoxy? Comes in two tubes, doesn't it? Take the two tubes and pour them out separate from each other and stand there and watch, and neither one of them will do what it's supposed to do. Take the two tubes and mix them together and stir it up real good, and you've got something that works. That's the Word of God and the Spirit of God being mixed together. Okay? So we reckon those things that we learn at whatever level we're at. However far we've grown, we take the truth that we've heard and we accept it as true and we add up the facts and we say this is true. I'm putting this in the account book of my life. This is true. Now I can go out and I can act on it. But reckoning doesn't stop there. Notice that it says, Likewise also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why? Because you have the power to say no. You didn't have the power to say no before. Any believer, child of God, born of the Spirit, that says, I can't help myself, is self-deceived. They're self-deceived. We have the power to break any addiction, any affinity, any connection, whatever it may be. We have the power to do it. And we're never going to do it until we start thinking, I have this power. 
I am able to overcome. I am in my identity in Christ more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me, and therefore I need to start living up to what I am in Christ. And how can I do that? I have to learn first. I have to know the truth so that I can reckon it to be true. And once I've reckoned it to be true, guess what I did? I just took the scepter of authority away from the devil, and I took it into my own life. And now I command what's going to happen in my life by the power of the Spirit of God. So what is the next step? Verse 13, do not present your body. Some of your translations will say, yield yourselves to God. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I can choose to use my mind, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my hands, my feet for my own self-gratification, or I can choose to turn my body into a lethal weapon for the kingdom of God. That's what we're here to be. We're engaged in a war. Have you noticed as you look around our country that it looks like we're in a war? Have you noticed that it looks like we're losing? You know why we're losing? Because the enemy is deadly serious about convincing you that everything that is honorable and everything that is virtuous and everything that is good and everything that is right is evil. If you're patriotic... You're bad. If you believe in absolute truth, you're bad. If you believe that boys are boys and girls are girls, you're bad. If you believe in honoring your country and fighting for your country and loving your country, you're bad. If you believe that your history is a glorious history, that's bad. But now here's all this other garbage that you're now not only encouraged to believe, folks, we're at the point where you're either going to bow the knee and bend the neck, or you're going to be the enemy of this country. When parents began standing up in school boards and saying, this is not going to go in our school, we are not going to let this stuff be taught to our kids, isn't it amazing? Our Department of Justice called them domestic extremists. You're a domestic extremist for caring about the direction that your children are going and what they're being taught. Everything's been flipped upside down and we better wake up really quick because the fight is intensifying and there's only a little bit of time left or it's going to be completely lost. Present yourself. The word present is paristomy. It means, well to place near at hand. If you're working, two guys working together on a building as they did with this building and as they're doing over there, guy's hammering away and a guy's over here on a ladder and he says, hey, I need a hammer. What do you do? You hand it to him. You just hand it to him. You have it. He needs it. You make it available to him. The Spirit of God is calling on us all the time to take this body that God gloriously gave us and marvelously has woven together in our mother's womb and hand it to Him, voluntarily offer it as an offering, 
What does he tell us in Romans 12? He picks up from right here. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by all that he has done, by all that he has given, by everything I've taught you from Romans 1 through Romans 11, and you look back over the marvelous, wonderful, glorious things that God has done for us. And Paul's saying, I'm pleading with you. I'm beseeching you by the mercies of God. Present your body a living sacrifice. That's the idea right here. This is where he picks it up from. You know what? I know you know this, but it's worth repeating. God doesn't need our ability. He has all the ability in the world. He needs our availability. He is not asking us to do. He's asking us to be available so he can do. The hammer doesn't drive the nail. The guy holding the hammer drives the nail. We are the instrument. He's the one that wields the tool. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. It already is. He's just told us that, holy brethren. You're already the tool he wants to use. Just place yourself available to him. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I don't know how it reads here. Reasonable service. Some translations say reasonable service of worship because that word service is a special word that was used of ministry in the temple. It's spiritual service. It is service to God. Present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Do you have the power to do that? Paul's admitting, the Holy Spirit is saying, you can do that. You can be conformed to this world. You can choose to be an instrument of the enemy. Hope that's not a nuclear warning. <laughs> Been a lot of talk lately about nuclear war. I told Nan if it hits, I hope it comes down right on top of us. Be a, be a, be a warm flash for just a second and it'll all be over. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Do you know why Samson is written up in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11? I mean, a guy like him. Who would pick him as an example? Most people have never considered the absolute staggering magnitude of the faith of that man. Do you realize that his mother was told before he was born that God had a mission for his life and that that mission was to be a warrior that would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines? The mother no doubt told the son so that as he grew up, he knew it was instilled in his mind, God has a mission for me. I am going to be a warrior and I'm going to begin to deliver my people from the Philistines. Don't you think that you would go sign up at the local karate school and start getting training? Wouldn't you want to gather some weapons? If you know you're going to war, you know you want the latest weapons available, wouldn't you go out and start getting a shield, a sword, 
a breastplate, wouldn't you start preparing yourself? Do you realize that he grew up his whole life and said, if God is going to use me that way, he's going to do it with nothing but my bare hands. And then even after his failure... I mean, he walked in to the Philistine stronghold, walks into the city, everybody there knows who he is, they're all his enemies, and he walks in, and have you ever stopped and thought of the fact that until the Spirit of God came upon him, he was no stronger than you and I? He knew that if the Spirit of God didn't come on him, he was toast. And he was willing to walk in there saying, if God wants to deliver me, the Spirit of God will come upon me. And he did. You remember what happened? They were watching to keep him from getting away. They closed and locked the gates. And what does he do? He picks the gates up on his shoulder and carries them 15 miles to the top of a mountain. And then in the end, broken by sin, blinded because of his disobedience, his head shaved by the Philistines as they made mockery of him. They brought him out so that they could parade him like a, a bear on a leash. And he still hadn't lost hope. And he said to the little boy, five-year-old boy that led him around in his blindness, take me to the pillars. The little boy took him there and he reaches out his hands and he feels the pillars that 3,000 Philistines are sitting on. And he bows his head and he says, Lord, this one more time. This one time, give me the strength that you've given me before. And he grabs those pillars, begins to push. And the Spirit of God came upon him and that was the kiss of the Heavenly Father saying, I never forsook you. I never left you. You always had this available. This power was always yours. All your shame, all your humiliation, all your defeat, everything that's happened to you was because you turned away from me. But I'm going to prove to you one more time, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And as he heaved, and the pillars parted and the roof came down. Do you remember what it says? He slew more in his death than he did in his life. The greatest victory of his life in that last closing moment when he said, I am not able and I am not worthy, but God is worthy and he is able and he will do what I did. You know what he did? He knew something. He reckoned it to be true. He decided to make himself available. And he ends up in Hebrews 11 saying to you and I, God still has a plan for your life. Let's pray and we'll pick it up in our next session after my favorite period, lunchtime, right? Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for each one who's come here. Speak to us by your spirit, the message that we need to hear. Enable us and empower us to take the things that we learn, to reckon them to be true, and to act on them, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.